the Murder Mystery Podcast. The story unfolds each week. Will you guess the killer? On the Murder Mystery Podcast, it's the Parisian Contract. Episode 7 Marianne has split the list of car owners overnight and sent emails to Jean-Luc, Sophie and Olivia before 6am. Olivia's four are all in the south of the city. She gets a taxi from the hotel and prepares for a long morning tracing owners. She considers if she might need a cover story, then realises it will be essential. What possible reason is there for a stranger to want to see someone's car? An advert selling it, but it was a mistake? Too provably false. A police check about a speeding fine? That would involve fake ID. A non-runner. A friend has left their coat on top of a black car and she is helping her search? Sounds like a lie. Finally, she decides that she's a woman from a car number plate lottery and the lucky owner could win a thousand euros. Her first stop is Rue Paul Hochard in Chevalier La Rue, a dull road that could be anywhere in the outskirts of any major city in Europe. Madame Boucher is at home, and yes, she does own a black car, and yes, that is her number plate. The car is parked behind the tower block where she lives, and she is only too pleased to show Olivia the car. The car has not been borrowed or stolen recently, and Olivia inspects the interior, but it is obviously not the kidnapped vehicle. She thanks Madame Boucher and lies that the lottery company will be in touch. Monsieur Allery is more doubtful. He has never heard of the car number plate lottery, and Olivia explains it is only just starting, and so he'll be one of the first winners. He reluctantly opens his garage, which is in the next road over from his house. The sun beats down on the roadway, and they walk in silence to the lock-up, in a dusty side street. Olivia inspects the car. Monsieur Allery is growing more doubtful by the minute. What is she looking for? Why does she need to see inside? She satisfies herself that he is no kidnapper, and calls a taxi on her phone app to escape. Her third owner, Monsieur Boudin, in Rue de Hameau, doesn't answer the door, but the car is parked in the road anyway. She looks inside. The car is messy. Bags and paper are strewn across the back seat. She pushes her face against the glass and tries to see what is inside. The voice is self-assured. She turns. Est-ce que votre voiture, monsieur? He is in his forties, short, cropped, dark hair sits on top of a face that has been damaged more than once over the years. His eyes shine brightly, but without emotion. He is dressed in black jeans and a red bomber jacket. Qui demande? Jeanette Bisset, she says. She holds out her hand and he shakes it. You're an English beauty, he says. She is stumped for a second. Yes is all she can think of to say. It is my car, he says. Good news, sir, because it's one of the winners of our new license plate lottery. He raises an eyebrow. Yes, every month our computer chooses ten winners at random 
from the list of all Parisian car number plates. Do you have an ID? he asks. This is my first day and the office is only printing it off right now, so I'll have it when I get back later today. She is impressed by her own creativity. He smiles. Has your car been used by anyone apart from yourself in the last week, sir? I ask because to win the prize you need to have been driving the vehicle. No one has been driving it, he says. Then I won't keep you any longer, and I'll confirm back to the office that you can be formally notified of the prize of one thousand euros. She is enjoying being Jeanette Bisset, but realises her time to remain credible is running out. Let me have your number, he says. That won't be necessary, sir. The office has your details and will be in touch. She walks away as fast as she can, without seeming to be scared, which she is. She gets to the main road and hails a taxi, then suddenly realises she is exhausted. She rides to the cafe where they agreed to rendezvous and compare notes at lunchtime. Sophie is already there. The place has seats on the pavement, and they sit outside. How did yours go? says Olivia. Well, mine were all west here. The first guy was sweet, but obviously not a kidnapper. The woman who owned the second one was angry, but I think was focused more on her personal problems than the need to commit crime. What about yours? The first two were no hopers. The third guy was weird. Looked suspicious, but I can't tell if I was just thinking he was guilty because of the way he behaved. What did he do? Massive flirt, says Olivia. But not in a good way. They both laugh. I've got two more this afternoon, says Sophie. How's Jean-Luc? Worried. About Cammy. Of course, but... Says Sophie. What? Something odd, she says. He doesn't feel like we're in this together. He said I should not worry about her safety and he can guarantee that she is all right. Guarantee? That's what he said. Such a strange way to say it. Like he knew more than he was telling me. You know him, though, says Olivia. Has he behaved like this before? He was a bit like this when that fraud accusation came up, says Sophie. Distracted, but not in the same way. He was innocent then, I'm a hundred percent certain. He just knew certain things that he couldn't tell me. Corporate secrets, I assumed. A taxi pulls up in front of the cafe and Marianne gets out. She kisses Sophie on each cheek, but shakes hands with Olivia. The waiter comes out and they order salmon, avocado and perrier. Marianne has had the same luck as the others, but has completed all four of her owners. None of hers looked suspicious, and all seemed genuine. So we only have your uber flirt, says Sophie, nodding to Olivia. Monsieur Boudin, she says. I don't know. What does a criminal look like, anyway? I thought you spent your life meeting them, says Marianne. I suppose I have, but that's not obvious until the judge declares them guilty, she says. The only common trait is they all lie, and they all enjoy lying. Oh, says Marianne. You choose to be a criminal, then you have to lie about it. 
The food arrives and they talk about their lives. Jean-Luc appears when they have finished eating. About time, says Sophie. Sorry, my owners wanted to talk and I thought it might give you some background. But all I've learned is too much detail about the lives of four people who happen to own the same car. The women relate their progress to him. This Boudin seems to be the only possible, then, says Jean-Luc, after hearing their updates. Maybe. You have doubts? Not sure he's a kidnapper, she says. Marianne hails a cab back to the office, and Sophie walks off to her car to visit her two other Renault owners. Jean-Luc orders food and sits opposite Olivia. How are you feeling? she says. All right, I guess. I'd like to get through the list. On a different note, did you talk to Constance? He falters, momentarily forgetting that Olivia knows about his mistress. I did, he says. She has three live cases. One is a planning application for a huge development near La Défense. A second is an international merger, but the client is clean as a whistle. And the third? There's a possible link here, he says. Medium-sized manufacturer, Larique Mordal. Being sued for breach of contract, she's defending. What's the link to you? Two of the directors that are suing were in the arms manufacturer from my Brussels days. And they could be trying to undermine Constance? It's a possibility, but tenuous in my mind, he says. She's her own woman. She's not going to weaken her defence because my daughter goes missing. Anything is possible, Jean-Luc. I don't know. Unlikely at best, I think. You know her better than I do, says Olivia. He reddens to her surprise. How long has it been going on? Can't we talk about something else? It might be relevant to the case. He pauses, then says, Two years. She raises her eyebrows. Not just a fling, then. I love Sophie, says Jean-Luc, leaping to his own defence. But? What, then? She's not enough? He struggles for words. I don't know. Maybe. You haven't talked to anyone else about this, have you, Jean-Luc? Why would I? He says. Your own sanity? Says Olivia. He eats his food, and their eyes avoid each other. The traffic momentarily drops, and a relative calm descends on the street. The voices of the people from the other tables are carried on the summer breeze, which catches Olivia's hair in the sun. She breaks the silence after a few minutes. I have one more address on my list, but my daughter is arriving this afternoon for a couple of days. I can cover it, he says immediately. Thank you. She checks her watch. Go, says Jean-Luc, looking at her for the first time in minutes. See you later, she says. Olivia decides to walk to the metro, as she has an hour before Poppy is due to arrive at the Gare du Nord. She has booked a room next to her own for her daughter. When Poppy does arrive, she instantly says that she must sleep before the evening, as she had to get up so early. They agree to meet in the hotel bar, 
at 7pm. When Olivia gets there, she orders a daiquiri and sits on a bench seat facing the doorway. She is surprised to see her daughter wearing a summer dress when she arrives. Hey, Mum, what's that? She's referring to the cocktail. Daiquiri. Can I try? The girl takes a sip. Nice. Want one? says Olivia. Sure. Olivia raises her hand and the waiter arrives. He smiles at Poppy, takes the order and goes. He was cute, says the teenager. He was, says her mother. Talking of boys, tell me about Stuart. Long gone, Mum. Didn't last, then. Love him and leave him, says Poppy. Her mother frowns. What was he like, anyway? Nice, bit nerdy, good sex. Poppy. But that's what I wanted to talk to you about, says the girl. Sex, surely you know all about it. Not that. It's just that you got pregnant young, didn't you? What were you, nineteen? Twenty. I'm eighteen in October. Thinking of getting pregnant by then? Olivia says jokingly, and the girl doesn't react. Poppy? I'm late, aren't I? You think you could be? Yes. How late? A few days. That's nothing, says the mother. Really? Yep, you can be much later than that. Actually, it's a week, says Poppy. Olivia sighs. Well, let's see, shall we? I don't want a kid, Mum. Is it Stuart's? She says. Of course, I'm not some slag. How do you feel? My mental health is screwed, to be honest, says Poppy. You know, school, this thing, you're abroad, Dad's not around. The waiter arrives with Poppy's drink and smiles at her again. Mademoiselle, he says as he places the glass in front of her, his eyes on hers. Merci beaucoup, definitely, she says, and he laughs. Olivia feels the weight of guilt from Poppy's previous statement drain away. They talk in the bar for an hour. Poppy becomes less spiky after the cocktail, and she orders another. They leave the hotel and walk two blocks to the west, to a small French restaurant that Olivia spotted the day before. Poppy enjoys being out in the big city. "'What was this about Uncle Chris?' says the girl. "'How did you hear that?' Dad, what did he say? A dopehead is always a dopehead, says the girl. He's always been a bit weird, though. Has he? You know how you can always tell if someone's on the Bolivian marching powder, says Bobby. Well, he's always had that look ever since I can remember. You put it so subtly. His choices, Mum. His consequences. Olivia wishes she had been so clear-headed at seventeen. Her mind flicks back to her own teenage years. She knew nothing about sex or drugs when she was Poppy's age. She had been an innocent right up to the point she went to Cambridge. She can't work out if that means she had a perfect or flawed childhood. Her freshers week had been a tornado of new experiences. The first time she'd stayed up all night. The first time she'd got drunk. The first time she'd slept with a boy. All in seven days. Her world view changed from that moment on, 
but the Olivia she still presents to her parents is the girl who left to go to university on that warm, sunny morning in September. Poppy has been expounding her views on her uncle while Olivia zoned out. Then she goes to the bathroom. Olivia checks her phone, which has been on silent. There's a voice message from an unknown number. She holds the machine up to her ear and listens. It's Max, sounding scared. He gives an address to meet and insists on meeting at 1am as they won't be able to find us then. Nice lose, says Poppy on her return. Poppy, I need to meet someone. Some bloke, is it? It's for work, says Olivia. You going now? In a few minutes, yes. Are you okay to get back to the hotel? I might go and chat up that waiter in the bar, to be honest. Her mother opens her eyes. Be careful, the girl laughs. In case the bad men get me, she mocks. You know what I mean. I'm your daughter, Mum. I think I'll cope. She winks. Did you wink at me? Chill, old woman, whispers the girl, standing up. You're paying, I take it. Go on. Poppy kisses her on the cheek and saunters out. Olivia smiles at the parts of her own youthfulness that are now parts of her daughter. The taxi drops off Olivia at a road junction near the address that Max gave her. This area of Paris is colder and darker than the bright lights of the central arrondissement. She turns the corner into the road. The first street light is broken, leaving a section of the pavement in shadow, and she speeds up her walk to get through the blackness. The houses are all identical, or were once. Now each has been personalised over the years, according to the whim of a string of owners. One is painted bright blue, another is semi-derelict, a third has brown paintwork, with all the blinds drawn and no lights on inside. She treads quietly, conscious of her heels echoing between the opposite sides of the street. She is looking for number 54. The house numbers are unclear, and she has to walk up closer to the doors to see if there is a number on any of them. Twenty-seven, she says out loud, for the want of the comfort of the sound of a human voice. She walks on. At the very end of the street, she finds 54. It has been split into flats, and there's a set of bell pushes on one side of the doorway. She can't remember which flat Max said to meet in, and she scrambles to get out her phone and re-listens to the voice message. She stabs at the bell to the flat, but there's no answer. She tries the door. It's open. She gently pushes it and steps in gingerly to the hallway. A single light bulb drops on a worn cord from the centre of a long hallway leading to the stairs at the back of the building. She treads like a gazelle, regretting not wearing her converses. The stairs creak as she walks up each flight. The flat she wants is on the top floor, the fourth. At the third floor landing, a baby carriage sits across the corridor, wedged between the banister 
and the front door, presumably of the owner. She moves it, and it sends a rattling echo down the stairwell. Olivia expects a resident to hear and open the door, but no movement comes. She is breathing hard now, partly tiredness, partly nerves. She makes her way slowly up the final flight of stairs. There is a single door on the top landing. She knocks gently. Nothing. She knocks again, a little harder. Suddenly the door flies open. Max is holding a bread knife pointing directly at her. It's me, Max, she blurts out. He visibly relaxes. I'm sorry, Liv, he says, and walks back into the flat. She follows him in and closes the door behind her. What on earth is going on? She's almost angry. I know, I know. It must seem very odd. You're telling me, she says. Come and sit down. Want a drink? He holds up a bottle of whiskey. Thanks. She quietens. Come on, there's a rooftop balcony. I feel safer outside, he says. They go through a door at the side of the room, up steps and out onto a flat part of the roof. There are three wooden chairs and a table that have been left out and are grey with rain. They sit on either side of the table and he pours two generous slugs of alcohol. They raise and chink glasses. Tell me what happened. He drinks almost all of his glassful, pauses, then starts to talk. It was a normal deal at first. Montgomery has taken over at least six other companies in the time I've worked with them. Each takeover needs a business case and numbers to be worked through on both sides. You know all this. She nods. Go on. About three weeks ago, I get this message from Dubois, saying that the deal may become a three-way, and he has met another bidder who has good cash reserves, and they would share the capital for an agreed return. Made sense. I asked Dubois for the details, and he didn't send them, so I chased him. I was in London all the time, of course. That's when things started to get odd. Max stops and drains the rest of his glass. Olivia is mesmerised. When I chase him, he comes back and says, Oh no, the three-way deal is off, as the partner has worked through the numbers and it didn't stack up for them says Max. Fair enough. Then, and this is where it gets interesting, then he said he was looking for a different potential deal altogether, and could I work out some numbers? I said yes, and he said that this was all strictly confidential, and could I keep it private between him and me? Not even tell Richard. That's odd, she says. Very. All deals I do are part of Carlyle's, of course. I'm not a freelance. Anyway, I run the numbers, and Dubois won't tell me the name of the company. Only gives me untitled spreadsheets, no company accounts or anything. And did the deal stack up for the new company? She says. Yeah, much better than the original Alpha and Montgomery numbers. What did you do? I sent Dubois the numbers. And did he say anything? Only thank you. Then he said, this could be very lucrative for both of us. You and him. That's what I took it to mean. Are you on a percentage for these deals, then? Not normally, says Max. 
I wanted a large base and small bonus arrangement when Richard took me on three years ago. Bonuses don't motivate me. I'd rather do the job properly. What happened then? She said. I researched the numbers to find out which company they were from. It's not difficult to match capital projections and revenues to corporate accounts. They're all public. And did you find out which company it was? I did. He pauses. Glenthrow Holdings. The takeover company, she says, and Max nods. Then nothing more happened until last week. You were flying in from New York, I think. Yes. I woke up in the morning, went for a jog as usual. I go round the park at the end of the road, then back. No more than half an hour, he says. As I run back towards my house, I see my car, and it's been crashed into the wall at the end of the road. I couldn't think what had happened, apart from joyriders, and they must have seen me leave the house and nip the car. I go up and inspect the damage, and there was... He stops to pour more whiskey. What? There was a man. Waiting for you. Under the car, says Max. Or half under the car. Half against the wall. What? She whispers. He was dead, says Max, with finality. They sit in silence for a second, Olivia taking in the information, and Max in shock from saying the words out loud for the first time, making it all seem more real. What did you do? She says. I ran, panicked, got dressed, took my passport, came here. Why? Why run? I knew who it was says Max. The dead man. Who? David Malneath. Glenthrow CEO. Olivia's mind is running at full speed, trying to take in this new information. Malneath, she repeats, hoping for inspiration. Max is silent. Why him? she says. I don't know but I do know that someone is willing to kill for a deal. And I do know that Dubois is involved. And I do know... I'm damn scared. Richard said it was a homeless guy, says Olivia. Did he? Who would kill, though? Someone with a lot to lose, like Dubois, says Max. He couldn't. She shivers. You're cold, let's go in. They walk back down to the interior. I can't quite piece it all together, she says. From the stairwell, a creak arrives in the room and hits their ears. They both stare at each other. Max puts his finger to his lips to indicate they should be silent. The creaks get louder. Someone is outside of the door. Max indicates that they should stand stock still. They wait. The seconds lengthen to minutes. The night air sweeps gently through the room. The moonlight pushes through a gap in the curtains and under the door to the roof. Her breathing slows. She can hear Max's breath too, but faster. She feels a pulse in her neck, beating out the time, making it all seem longer 
beads of sweat form along her hairline. The creeks stop. They wait. Olivia is the first to move. She touches Max's arm. He turns his head and nods. It's okay, I think, he whispers. What was it, Max? No idea. The wind, maybe. They both know it's a windless night, but don't say anything. You'd better go, Liv. Shouldn't you go somewhere else? She says. I'll be fine. I'm travelling tomorrow to a new place. Good. Where? In Paris? I'll decline to answer if that's okay. Sorry. Paranoid. Of course, no. Sure. She hugs him. Tells him it'll all be okay. Creeps down the stairway. And walks back to the main road.